Good to see you tonight. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 2 tonight, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. It's a great joy to be able to share what God has done in my life, a testimony to his power and kindness over generations. In some ways, a boring story, but we love boring stories, uh, mindful that even they require the power of God to take a dead sinner and raise him to life. We'll talk about me, a 13-year-old boy, and all the wisdom of a 13-year-old boy, and yet the God's kindness to come and save me. So let's hear God's word, his inspired, inerrant, infallible word, our only rule of faith and practice, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, and then hear the story of God's kindness to me and my family. Ephesians 2, beginning of verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying our desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Our Lord, our God, as we set before our hearts and our minds these familiar words, we confess our need of your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Oh, how long so many of us sat in a church, listening but not able to hear, seeing but not able to see, Oh, God, open our eyes and ears that we might behold wonderful things from your law, especially we might behold the Lord Jesus himself, who's mighty at work to save our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My story begins in Jessup, Georgia. I'm mindful that no matter how well I celebrate the town before you, it would probably not rise to the level of significance in your mind that it holds in my own heart even if I tell you University of Georgia fans, Stetson Bennett's family is in there and around there. Lindsey Scott, for you older Bulldog fans, this is the town of Jessup, Georgia. We raised up guys like that. But for me, it was where my grandparents both lived on both sides of the family. It's where my mother and father were raised. It's where I was born. I'm old enough now, the hospital I was born in, they built a new one behind it, and they would tear it down and build a parking lot so if I'm in front of my mother and they say, where were you born? I love to say, in the parking lot of the Wayne Memorial Hospital. I was born there. My grandfather was buying the Jekyll Island grocery store at the time. So six weeks later, uh, we're living on Jekyll. We'd come back. I was baptized in the same church, same Episcopal church. My parents were married in St. Paul's Episcopal Church, the same church that I would some 35 years later, preach at my grandmother's funeral in the same place. We lived in this town and then moved a county over, but we always kept a foot in Jessup. 
And so living on Jekyll, for those of you who might even know where Jessup, Georgia is, it's about an hour up 341. You've been to St. Simon's, you were oh so close, just not in the big town of Jessup. But my grandfather starts the store, my dad would run it for 40 years. I was groomed to take over the business all those years later. But we would, after several years, buy property in Wayne County. It's the Fender Farm, you've never heard of it. It's spectacular in our eyes. It's where I learned to take my Tonka dump truck and play in the real dirt out there. It's where I learned to shoot a BB gun. It's where I learned to catch catfish and clean them and uh, fry them and enjoy them there. It's where I uh, would learn to build a fire in a big old fireplace. All eight days of the year, you need a fire in Jessup, Georgia. We'd go to town for that purpose. It had a tin roof. So if it was raining and I had time off in the afternoon, we'd go sit under the tin roof. This is where I learned to do all those outdoor things, which are so much fun. And yet there I am going back and forth, loving uh, Jekyll and Brunswick, where we eventually live, getting away to Jessup every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, enjoying time with family, which is so valuable, especially to both generations in the same place. I was the oldest of 16 grandchildren on that side. And so we got to spend lots of time and energy outside there. And in our hearts, having come from three, now three generations of fenders that were in the Episcopal Church, we spent our days worshiping in the Episcopal Church. If you've been to one or been to a Lutheran church or a Catholic church, they have the same general feel. Lots of worship, lots of liturgy, lots of elements to the worship and service itself, but very, very shallow on teaching. You just didn't learn much. I remember being 10, 11, 12, going to my mom and dad and saying, you know, listening to that preacher preach is like reading Reader's Digest. There's like five or six short stories, but there's really nothing that ties together. And yet, in God's kindness, every week, in that book of common prayer, we're reading the Bible. We're praying about a God who is real and made all things. We're reading about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're learning about the spirit of God who awakens the souls of men all the elements were there, but I wasn't a Christian. It's 11, 12, 13 going on in the Episcopal Church at the age of 13, they have a confirmation class. So it's this standard practice. When you get to that age, you go through a confirmation class and the purpose of that class is simply this. Let me read it. Confirmation is the sacramental rite in which the candidates express a mature commitment to Christ and receive strength of the Holy Spirit through, through prayer and the laying on of hands of a bishop. So you're supposed to go through age of 13 to confirm a faith that you have, a mature expression of Christianity. There was one problem. I didn't have a faith in Christ. And so there I am at the magical age of 13 to make a profession I didn't have. Oh, how many young kids would go through that class and go through the motions and they would have that proud moment of that picture with the bishop where mom and dad somehow feel better about everything because you, you went through the class, but the problem was I wasn't a Christian. I, I went to worship, uh, but I was, there was no change. There was a lack of a grasp of the gospel until that age of 13. And the sovereign work of our God, in a, in a moment of confirming a faith I didn't have, God began to awaken my heart. It was a godly teacher, a man, I can see his face, I can understand well who he was, what he was teaching, 
with all the lack of clarity from the pulpit here in the Sunday school class, was a man who taught me the gospel. Of course, you realize, if, you've, if you know the gospel well, you realize that the first news of the gospel really is the bad news of the gospel. Oh, gospel literally means good news, but it starts with bad news. Now, understand, I was the firstborn in our family. There's me and my sister, and I was a relatively good kid. Now, ask my sister. She'll tell you a much different story. Uh, I just have to remind her that I was partly parenting her as well as my parents were. You realize these dynamics. I was a relatively good kid. There was a story of when I'm six years old and I'm with my aunt and she says, don't climb the ladder. I climbed the ladder and fell. And she says, what are your mom and dad gonna think when I tell them you fell down? And I, in the wisdom of a six-year-old, would say, one thing I know, if you don't tell them, they'll never know. (laughs) Right? She's told the story a thousand times. I was a relatively good kid, but here's my problem at 13. I thought I was a relatively good kid. Uh, my parents, in, in the maturity they had at that level, were, were committed to Sunday worship, at least in the morning. In the kindness of God, it was a priority in their lives we went. And so I'm in the right places, uh, in a church that at least read the Bible every week. And yet I'm awakening at the age of 13 to the reality of what we read here in Ephesians chapter 2, there's this declaration, as for you, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Now, feel for a moment what's happening in my life. I look at my life, I look at the people around me, I think I'm a pretty good kid, I'm making A's and B's, I'm not in trouble, I'm not going to the principal's office, uh, I, I am generally compliant as a firstborn kid. I'm looking at the world around me and saying, I'm okay, I go to church, I've been an acolyte since I was the youngest of boys. Everybody else praised me for the way I live my life. And yet in this class, there's a, there's a crisis. A moment where, for just a moment in my life, I've gone from looking at the people around me and saying, I know lots of kids in my class that are far worse off than me, to this moment where my eyes are drawn not to my classmates, but to, to my God himself who speaks into my life with the words like Ephesians chapter two, verse one. Now, honestly, I don't remember the text that God used in that season at 13, but this is wonderfully illustrative of where I was. I'm living my life focused on everybody around me. And in this moment, a teacher begins to say, let me tell you about your God. Let me remind you about the character and the nature of your God. He and he alone is holy, holy, holy. He alone is of of, of purity, which we we can't understand in our own minds. And so there's this moment of crisis at age of 13 where these things are becoming clear. I'd heard them before, but it was like my ears were plugged a bit. I'd seen them in God's Word, but it was like I had a fog over my eyes. And in this moment, what was happening is the clouds are parting for a moment. And I realize my eyes have been looking in the wrong direction. I'm looking horizontally, not vertically. I'm looking at my classmates and not at the God who made me, the one for whom I would have to stand before his judgment seat one day. And as I lift my eyes towards heaven, I realize the picture is very, very different. I'm a sinner, and I sin in thought and word and deed. Yes, generally compliant outwardly, as the world would say you're good, but what does the Bible say? Here's God's 
declaration. As for you, John, you are dead in your sins and transgressions. You are enslaved to the prince of the power of this world. There's where your life is, and you realize what God's saying here becomes this crisis of faith. The, the, the best illustration I can give you this morning, this evening rather, to say, what, is this, what does this change look like? A perspective from looking around to looking upwards. Imagine for a moment if the Olympic trials came to Augusta and the competition was jumping across a river. It's jumping across the Savannah River down here at the amphitheater right by the Boll Weevil Cafe. Maybe you know the place. Stairwell and then there's a platform and jump across. It's about three to 500 feet wide. And so imagine for a moment we say, let's go try out. In fact, the entire pastoral team at First Pres Augusta says, let's go try out. And there we are, and some jumps are remarkable and some are comical. We're making our jumps across to see who would make the team. Everybody's there. Mike Heron's there, been running for 30 plus years. He feels good about things, he's there. Mike Phillips is there, uh, he's comfortable. If he doesn't, doesn't go well, he's got a solid G3 group that can support him, he'll be fine. Right, DT's got the youth pulling for him. Luke Nade, Hope for Augusta's there. The whole staff is there. The young guys, Alan, uh, Chris, they're ready. They've got this. Ken and I are just trying to figure out what's the right location, the right names of the people. We're figuring this thing out, right? And we jump. And imagine it for a moment. We all make our jumps, and we realize we're getting out of the water and saying, "Okay, who made the team?" And so someone says, "I jumped the furthest. Surely I'm on the team." And another one says, uh, I think it's top three. The top three longest jumps, surely all of us will make it. Another person says, I bet the top 50% will make it. One guy says, as long as we meet a minimum standard, everybody be on the team. And out walks the coach and says, nobody made the team. And we're scratching our heads. What do you mean nobody made the team? And he says, here's the, here's the standard. You gotta jump across the river. And we all look at the long river and say, we, nobody can do that. We're limited. We can't, we can't do that. And yet there's the standard. Who can make it all the way across? If you can understand the silly analogy, you can understand the heavenly truth. God says the soul that sins will die. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You might be outwardly more conformed to God. You might look like a better person than God, but God knows our hearts, thoughts, and words, and deeds. And in this moment of a crisis of faith at the age of 13, all that becomes painfully clear. John, you're a sinner. John, you're a sinner, and you're gonna fall short of the glory of God. John, you're a sinner, and when you stand before God on that day in which you die, and he says, why shall I let you in? You've got no reason you're standing there all by yourself and you'll never, never measure up. And so in the, in the receiving of the gospel, the good news is the gospel. We understand it begins first with the bad news of the gospel. You're a sinner, dead in your sins and transgressions. And so at this moment is a 13-year-old who went to a confirmation class, not because I thought, here's a great idea, but because mom and dad said, hey, here's what's next. And yet in the sovereignty of God, a teacher begins to speak perhaps like my parents had always done, perhaps like other Sunday school teachers, but in that moment, things begin to make sense. The pain began to be real, and I was longing for an answer. 
So Sunday school confirmation class was a series of weeks. I remember it being in my mind about six weeks. And I remember going the first week and all of a sudden this, this, this clouds are parting and now the pain is coming and I'm realizing, John, you're in a jam and you can't save yourself. Makes you eager the next week to go hear the next part of the story. What's the good news? What's the remedy of all of that? Well, the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians chapter two, he begins with this declaration we're dead in our sins, verse 1 to 3. As for you, you were dead in your sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I encourage you, if you hear those words tonight and you say, it's just not true of me. Like that, that's are the really bad people. He's using all inclusive language here. We all once were, he says. He's writing to believers saying, looking back upon where you were. This is the indictment of God. This is the declaration of God for all people at all times. This is the way we're born into. Here's the need which we all face. And at this crisis in my life at the age of 13, I felt the weight of that and began to cry out, what's the remedy? Now, in God's kindness, Paul goes on to tell us the rest of the story, right? Verse four, these glorious words of God's intervention. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we we're dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Here's, here's the redemption. Here's the intervention. Here's the initiative of our God. I'm a 13-year-old kid. The weight of the world is upon my shoulders. I see my sin. I long for help. And I realize in this moment that the first two words of verse four become precious to us, life-giving. Now imagine by way of contrast for a moment. If we read in verse one through three, here's your condition, you're dead in your sins. And then we got to verse four and now we find the remedy and verse four began with the words, not but God, but with the words, but Paul. Just bear with me for a moment. What if Paul says, Here's how bad off we used to be. But Paul, in his wisdom, he figured a way out of his mess. But Paul, being great in good works, he qualified despite all the bad things that were against him. But Paul, being great in determination, he kept at it and at it until God finally let him in. Imagine the pain for a moment or the, the burden upon your shoulders as if, the good news of the gospel was you're dead in your sins and you have to get yourself out of your own mess to be smart enough or hardworking enough or determined enough to get it out of that, to weasel out of that problem. Oh, praise God that verse four doesn't say, but Paul, it says, but God. Feel for a moment the, the reality, but, but God intervenes. You're dead in your sins and transgressions. You're following the prince of the power of the world. You are objects of wrath. But here comes a savior from the outside. It's God himself. But God, who's rich in mercy. These, these words, by the way, 
but and God, they may be the greatest two-word combination in all the Bible. Right, put, put two words together in the Bible. You find side by side. Find a better one than Ephesians 2, verse 4, and let me know what you think. Here it is, the gospel in two words, but God. John, you were dead in your sins. John, you sinned before a holy God. John, you can never get out of your situation, but God can do that. But God can intervene. Here's the gospel in two words. God intervenes. God initiates. God has a plan of rescue. How glorious in this 13-year-old heart of mine and now 48-year-old heart of mine, it's even greater. I can see it with more clarity. There was a great problem. God declared I was dead in my sins, but now God declares he'll intervene. And so we realize here in my own story at this point in time, there was a God who was alive and at work. And in that moment, the gospel made sense for the first time in my life. My mom and dad had told me it. Sunday school teachers had proclaimed it. Even Episcopal Church mentions it oftentimes. But now here's the initiative of God. The God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There comes this moment in, in my life at that season where the things that I knew on one level, they now make sense. I now see them with a greater clarity. I now hear them with clear ears. The cross of Christ is the means by which my sins can be paid for. The cross of Christ is the means by which me, a dead sinner, can now be made alive because Jesus died and was made alive. Like it all came together in just, what, just a moment just the season of about six weeks, I saw the bad news of the gospel. Now, I see the good news of the gospel. It makes sense. These stories now fit together. And now, I now understand why he went to the cross. So I didn't have to do that. I understand why he paid the penalty of my sin. That now, I don't have to do that anymore. And I realize, here's this God who's declaring my sins and declaring salvation, and he's the one that makes it happen. In that moment, at age 13, these became precious truths to me. Now, of course, as you go through the passage, there is more to the story. Verse 8 and 9 says, here's God's gifts to us, namely, the gift of faith. Verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. Mindful parents, now that we have kids, you, you realize I can set truths before our kids, I can point them to Christ, and yet something has to happen inside of them. I would understand in the, uh, the, the wisdom of a 13-year-old, right, that, that I need to do something in response, and I felt like I was doing this thing uh, and God's kindness over time as we would come out of the Episcopal Church uh, and in college get involved in RUF, I, I realized that even the things that I'm doing as a 13-year-old were but the gifts of God. Uh, what, can, what can a dead person do? That was once asked, a seminary professor asked, asked this class one time, what can a dead person do? And the, the wise seminary class uh, mate said, all they can do is stink. <laughs> That's all we can do. But here what happens is, God gives gifts. He takes those who are dead in their sins and says, I'm going to give you the gift of faith. 
For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. So in my own testimony, this crisis to confirm a faith I didn't have, God's awakening my heart and gives me the gift of faith, and now I respond. I place my faith in Christ. I trusted in my Savior. I, I realize now even that's a gift of God, that salvation from first to last is God's doing. And so here I look back now and say, it wasn't like I was a sharp 13-year-old who made a great decision. No, God awakened my heart. God gave me a gift, and I was able by his kindness to exercise the gift that is faith. And in that moment, I would rest and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. There's those moments in all of that where you realize in God's kindness, I've gone from being blind to seeing in the course of about six weeks. In my life, I don't remember a, a day, but in this season, it's amazing. It's a little bit like dominoes that were just set up all along the way. God, in his kindness, gave me parents who told me about this God and told me about his son and I went to a church family and they, all the dominoes are lined up, but there's no kind of power behind it until this season where God says, I'm ready to push now and use that. And now I see I see my sins. I see God's intervention. I even see the gifts he's given me. I'm exercising the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. I'm acknowledging all these things. And in that moment, you begin to see this reality of a God who's always been at work. I was like the kid who was kind of blind to all the realities, not mindful. There's a God who's been at work from, the, from before I was ever born. And he set these things up. He's ordained certain people, certain places, certain parents, certain grandparents. And here in this moment now, I see God at work. Receive and rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in him. So in God's kindness, to confirm a faith I didn't have was the very moment God gave me the gift of faith. And I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 and 10 Verse 10 in particular, we can't leave out of the story. Here now is fourthly and finally God's call upon our life to walk with him. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I remember thinking as a 13-year-old, my spiritual life was really confined to church. If you said, what does a Christian do? I would say Christian goes to church and we help out. I was an acolyte. You carry the cross, you carry the candle. When you get to be a teenager, they trust you with the incense at Christmas and Easter. I graduated through all those things. Uh, boys are competitive, and so you're ready to work your way through that. I thought in those terms, this is what a spiritual life was. But for me, I'm realizing now at the age of 13, as God is saving me, it's not merely a praying of a prayer. Uh, we didn't walk an aisle in Episcopal Church. You did the confirmation class. But it was entering into a living, breathing relationship with God. That now all of my life is an act of devotion to my God. All of my life now is living as thankfulness to my God. I would submit to him and those other authorities like I had done outwardly before, but now, now I wanted to. The first fruits in my spiritual journey came in that church. I was an acolyte because my mom and dad made me be an acolyte. But the next Sunday was, I, I, can, I can do something for the God who saved me. 
I can do something for the God who's redeemed me. As an act of devotion, as an act of gratitude, I might not be a missionary at the age of 13. I'm not going overseas at 13, but I can serve where God has put me. And here's a task. And so in the simplicity of that moment, here I just start taking steps of faith. And I began to serve in that way. I remember in my teenage years, getting to high school at this point, I was the one who said, Lord, I want to serve you in some way. Just don't put me up front in front of a group of people, right? Don't pray a prayer. It's, just bad. it's a bad idea. And God said, even in high school, I got a good spot for you in the, in the front of that group. And he would do that a bit in college and then do that afterwards. You realize here, as I'm taking a step of faith, just serve my God. It wouldn't look spectacular in the world's eyes. But in the economy of God, he puts me in a living, breathing relationship with him. I'm receiving him by faith. I'm repenting of my sins, and I'm taking steps. In fact, a significant step happened when I'm a junior in high school. I'm serving through the Episcopal Church, but my life was baseball. I longed to play baseball as long as I could play it. Junior year, if you're a baseball fan, hit 385 for Glen Academy. Small colleges are talking about me playing ball for them. Even Presbyterian College, where Chris Williams spoke about last week, uh, though I'm much older than him. Being recruited. So my senior year, here it comes. These are my plans. God, I'm going to be a baseball player. And one afternoon on St. Simon's Island, inside in a batting cage, a curve master, if you know what that is, a switch from a right-handed curve to a left-handed curve, and I got hit. My first week of my senior year of baseball season, I go down hard. And I'm on some heart, some medicine for a couple of weeks. I miss 20% of my senior year. And when you miss 20% of your senior year, you don't go play, play college baseball. I remember a season of about six months where I'm very angry with my God. I've lost the one thing that I wanted. And yet I realize, even as God has been at work since before I was born, God was at work in my high school years as well. I would eventually say, I give up. I go on my fallback plan, which is to go to Mercer University for business school to take over my dad's grocery business. In the first two weeks at Mercer, guess what happens? I meet this really cute girl who would take about four years to persuade to marry me, but she would. In two weeks, I've met her. And in two weeks, I've met a man named Henry Morris, an RUF campus minister. I had no idea what Reform University Fellowship was. I had no idea what the PCA was. I had no idea what justification and sanctification were. But in two weeks, I've met the man who's going to teach me all those things. Because in part, a pitching machine which ruined my life and yet sent me on a far different path. And yet here I am. I'm saved at 13. I'm in a living breathing relationship with God, and he's leading me wherever he wants to lead me. And over time, I'm learning more and more he's trustworthy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not know the destination in this lifetime, but I'm going to follow today. I'm going to follow tomorrow. I'm going to keep taking step after step. Les and I get married right after college. We moved to St. Simon's Island. I worked for my father on Jekyll Island. There's a very small PCA church plant there, and so I'm the kind of coming out of the Episcopal Church. She's coming out of the Baptist Church. Let's just try out the PCA church plan on St. Simon's. God would use that ministry to cultivate our love for Christ. And we would, we would learn that God has set us apart, not for the grocery business, but for ministry. And we would head off to seminary with our first child at age 26. And as they say, the rest of that is history. My encouragement to you tonight as I close out here is to say, think about some of the means that God has used. He used grandparents in a mighty way. 
to set the pace for our family, to say, we, we worship our God. We follow our God through all the adversity and blessings of this life. We follow our God. He uses parents to say, we'll make the Lord's Day a priority. We're going to worship our God. We'll put our children underneath the means of grace week in and week out. He uses Sunday school teachers to speak with clarity, not in a contradictory way to my parents, but to a supportive way. So I heard in class what I was hearing at home, and the combined effect was glorious. He used a baseball career-ending injury to change the trajectory of my life. My worst day was perhaps my best day in the economy of God because I now know him in a better way, which I'd never known had that day not happened. And he uses a church plant like we were on in St. Simon's to say, this is what kingdom work looks like. I, I can labor here. I can have brothers and sisters in Christ, and I can be encouraged in my faith. He uses all of that. So as you sit here today, maybe... You, you have long ago placed your faith in Christ. Remember, that God is still using means. That God is still very much alive and at work all the days of our lives, giving us the joy and the privilege of being used of him to hold out the beauty of the gospel. And if you're here today and you're 13 or you're 30 or you're 60, and these concepts of sin and salvation don't make sense, yes, hear the bad news of the gospel. You're dead in your sins and transgressions, but oh, please hear the good news of the gospel. But God, but God is rich in mercy. God, who was rich in mercy, even when we're dead in our sins and transgressions, oh, he can make us alive in Christ. He did it in my heart. I know he has the power to do it in yours. Receive the gift of faith. Trust in him alone for your salvation and enters that living, breathing relationship, which is such a joy all the days of our life, and indeed for all eternity. Let's pray together. Our Lord, our God, would you indeed work, we pray. Uh, we, we realize every story in and of itself can be powerful, but there's nothing more powerful than this text. A God who intervenes, a God who initiates, a God who gives those who are blind sight and deaf ears to hear, be gracious, O oh God. May we only in the days ahead hear more and more stories, not just from pastors, but from every person in this room as they would say, oh, indeed, I, I now see what I didn't see before, a glorious Savior who died for my sins. O oh God, bring glory and honor to yourself as you save sinners like us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.